Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Can we give God a great hand today? Just worthy of all our praise. So nice to be home. Um, here at my home church, Kathy was with me the first service. Of course, we're empty nesters now after many years of raising kids, fostering kids. And um, I, I trust we'll continue to be empty nesters. Hallelujah. Anyway, it's so good to be with you. I was in Texas this week, Portland this week, and a few days before that, Istanbul, Turkey. So it's good to be back home here. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you for my Bethel family. Lord, I guess it's 29 years or so I've been coming here preaching. It's been such a privilege. I bless Pastor Dave, Lord, as he's there in our new site in Dixon. I thank you for our sites. Lord, there in Murfreesboro, God, out in Clarksville, bless um, Pastor James as Deb as they're headed to see family. We bless them. We thank you for this church. Amen. How many of you enjoyed Pastor James' series, Choices? How many of you know the book of James will convict you like every sentence? Um, if I ever want to get convicted, I can turn to James. If I want to get a little scared, I turn to Hebrews. Maybe in Revelation. Okay, now, we've been titled this series, Choices. Uh, the choices that you and I face every day. I want to go a bit more macro today and talk about some of the larger choices we face as American Christians. The choices that will affect the future of this nation. I want to break this message into two parts. I want to talk about the conundrum we face as Christians when we consider our nation. And I want to talk about the three choices or responses we can have to our country's peril. How many know it's been a very interesting few years in world history? Pandemic, massive economic chaos, the threat of major war there in Europe and people wondering about nuclear war. Seems like just yesterday, we were in the old sanctuary in 2018, New Year's Eve, I was speaking as I always do, and many of you know that that ended up being recorded, and then like God talked about what was gonna happen to the country, the economy, the pain, all we would be facing. I talked that night that within 17 months, um, there'd be another time of ethnic healing, but it would be a time of great polarization in our country. 17 months from then is when Mr. Floyd was terribly killed. And you know, God's never surprised. And I talked that night that although many would say America would be done, that America would be polarized, divided, end in anarchy, God was going to bring revival. But what is the conundrum we face as Americans? As you come into Thanksgiving, how many of you have something you can thank God for? Me also. 
Like, I thank God that I can preach and not be put in prison. I just with many of our pastors from around the world, buildings, bulldozed, tortured, imprisoned, threat of death. But I want to talk about America because America provides a conundrum for Christians. On one hand, America sinned terribly. Let's just be honest. Slavery, abortion, perversion, immorality, treaty breaking, racism. We sinned terribly. I'll never forget standing in the nation of the Philippines in a very nice restaurant getting ready to address the presidential cabinet of the Philippines, the most powerful people there. I never should have had that chili red shrimp sauce that I spilled all over the front of my shirt eating lots of shrimp before I spoke. So I stood up there looking like someone had tried to shoot me, realizing that we'd lied to this nation as Americans repeatedly, realizing that during the Spanish-American War, we'd promised them their freedom from colonization if they helped us, then colonized them. I started out by apologizing for the lies America had told them. On the other hand, despite the sin of our nation and, and just the wickedness, there's just a thread of the hand of God through our nation. We are and have been for a long time the greatest missionary sending nation in the world, by far. We've received more revivals than almost any nation in human history probably other than Israel and maybe the UK. In the 20th century, the revivals that started here in the United States shook the world. As a superpower, we've been one of the more benevolent in history. How can that be? Like, everyone that we defeat, we rebuild. That's not normal. Every year, Americans are among the most generous people in the world. Like, what doesn't add up? How can our nation be so broken on one hand, so wicked on the other, and there's like this thread of God that goes through this nation? And for those of you who know me, know I have no like political partisanship. What are you partisan about, Pastor Jim? Jesus, my wife, and cookies. <laughs> Honestly, when I look at both our major political parties, I feel orphaned. And a lot of what's locked up in America is locked up in its founding. Let me talk about that for a moment. Now, before I talk about our founding as an English-speaking country, we can't forget that the longest, the oldest inhabited uh, place in America really is St. Augustine, Florida by Spaniards. That being said, I wanna talk about Jamestown and I wanna talk about Plymouth. Because I believe as you look at those two places where America was founded, you find kind of this conundrum, what seems so antipodean about America. Jamestown was founded in 1607. It was rough. They had a lot of trouble with Native Americans from the beginning they fought with them. As much as we love the beautiful story of Pocahontas and John Rolfe, by the time she died, there were troubles again. In fact, by 1619, they were selling Native Americans to pay for their wars. It was also in August of 1619 
that a slave ship came to the shores of North America. 20, 30 African Americans really sold into slavery, traded for food, the crew of the slave ship was starving. Jamestown had it, its ugly story. When famine came, they ate one another when they died. It was a broken story. Not all bad, entrepreneurial. They gave us tobacco. Yet that's not the whole story of America. A few months after the first boatload of slaves landed in America, another boat was sailing from England. I might add, on the way to the Virginia colony. And there were entrepreneurs and there were these crazy people, 30-something of them, called pilgrims or separatists, who somehow had this strange view that God was sending them to America and something good could happen in the middle of brokenness. You know the story? They were blown 500 miles off course. Never made it to Virginia. Ended up in Chesapeake Bay around Massachusetts. Landed, landed in Massachusetts, Plymouth. Unlike their, their fellow English people there in Jamestown, the first generation, first 70 years, had wonderful relations with Native Americans. In fact, were saved by them. It was their governor, James Winthrop, that somehow said, for all this pain and all this wickedness, somehow I believe there's something in America that God wants to use. Abraham Lincoln in our own civil war himself said, as he realized God was judging our nation over the wickedness of slavery. He said, we live in the almost Christian nation. Suffice this to say, in all of our brokenness, in all of our sin, in all the things where people have been marginalized, oppressed, and broken in America, somehow God's not given up on us. Somehow there's a future. And my question then today is, how do we respond to our nation? How many of you know our country's broken? Raise your hand. Broken. Polarized. Posing political parties, demonize one another. You say, what do you know about it? Plenty. I've ministered to multiple American officials on both sides of the aisle. I'll never forget being in a state where they were battling over the gay marriage issue, and I do believe in the biblical view of marriage. The riot police were there. Christians were, I guess they were Christians, they were screaming on one side. LBGTQ leaders were screaming on the other. The riot police were trying to keep from killing each other, and I was sitting in the state house. And politician after politician was coming into my office since I was sitting in the speaker's chamber, crying and weeping after voting pro and con. Like, what do you say to culture? How do we respond to our nation? And as we look in the book of James, I think we have three choices. We can just get the arm of the flesh, get angry, fracture, partisan, hate. That's the first choice says this, what causes quarrels among you? In James chapter 4, 1, what causes fights among you? And I might add, though it may be metaphorical, what it's really saying is, what causes fistfights among you? What causes violence among you? What causes sword fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you kill people. 
You murder people. This is a little scary. He's talking to the church. You covenant and could not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you never asked me in prayer. When you did ask, you didn't receive it because you asked wrongly. You wanted to spend it on what you wanted. You're a pack of adulterers. You're so much like the world, you've lost your friendship with me. That is a happy passage. I mean, here's a church just literally fighting, whether it's metaphorical or they're really fist fighting. Some scholars believe that there were political zealots. Those are political assassins who'd gotten saved and they were so angry over Roman tyranny, we'll just kill them. Maybe they were fighting Gentiles coming in the church, maybe over doctors, but they were fractured. They were broken. They were torn. They were rent. Is the church going to become like the country? Broken, shattered over political lines, ethnic lines, gender lines, demographic lines. And why is this important? It's because it's only the church with the big C that has the power to touch what really destroys a nation. You ever lived in war? You ever walked out when people's hands are tied behind their back and their heads are blown off? You ever wake up to machine gun fire and they're slaughtering people in the streets? People scared to death because their kids are being kidnapped? I have. You look into the eyes of the people when they receive the picture of their son's torn body tortured to death by ISIS? I have. The world's broken. And may I tell you whether you're Democratic, Republican, Libertarian, or don't know and don't care, no political party can save the country. Please vote your conscience. But the Congress can't save us. The president can't save us regardless of who he or she is. Supreme Court can't save us because the root of what ails the world the root of what ails our broken, battered, torn country is spiritual. It's not simply political. It's not simply ideological. It's not simply philosophical. You know how our leaders feel? They're more scared than we are. I remember my first foray into the White House many, many decades ago. I was just a young man and God had showed me some things that were gonna happen and somehow it made its way into the White House. And my phone rang, I was young. You said, well, you're looking young now, pastor. Are you maybe 28? Yes, give or take 40 years, that's true. 40 years and 70 pounds. Okay, so much for that now. There I was, phone rang. Powerful woman, second most powerful woman in the world. She and her husband, president's best friend's wife. She says, listen, Pastor Jim. She said, my president and the president and the husband, they're scared to death. They don't know what to do, let's pray. That's when I realized the power of the church. And as we stand on this pre-Thanksgiving week, all of us thanking God, how do we respond to our nation's plight? How do we respond to our world's plight? How do we respond? And is it our responsibility? Yes, it is. The Lord says, Ask of me, and I'll give you the uttermost parts of the world. Ask of me.
and I'll touch your country. Now, James has two ways to respond, two other choices. The second one is found in James 5, 7 through 10, waiting patiently, and this is normally fine. Be patient. May I confess to you that's one of my least favorite words in the Bible, patient. People ask me all the time, how do I know what God's timing is? I said, very simply, it's never when you want it to be. Seeming too late or too soon. Be patient under the coming of the Lord. That's frustrating. This was written over 2,000 years ago. Bruce Fiddler, one of, our, one of our great leaders here in the church, he's my theological Google. I say, Bruce, if we're in the last days 2,000 years ago, is it like the last minutes, like last seconds, where are we? Why does God have us always living in this anticipation of the last days coming? It's because if we don't look toward his final coming, we'll miss his many comings to touch and to save and deliver. See how the farmer waits. My wife loves gardening. I believe in vegetables, like you shop for them. I guess you grow them. You know, my dad grew up at a farm. You gotta be like a farmer. He waits patiently for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. They plant the seed, they, they weed it, they watch it, waiting for the early and latter rains. Okay, that works. We plant seeds in our children, believing and waiting one day they'll bloom. Raising children is much like farming. You plant all you can and pray eventually it takes root and comes out. As one pastor said, when my children were young, I wrote lots of books on child rearing. When they got old, I wrote books on prayer. And there's just much of that very true. We sow, we believe, we wait patiently. We wait for the early and the latter rains. That was the rains that watered the ancient world, watered Israel. We also know from the book of Joel that God says, I'll bring you the early and latter rains, but I'll also bring you the rains of the Holy Spirit. But there is a time when just waiting patiently is not enough. It later tells us in that passage, look to the prophet as an example, prophets. There's a time when the drought is so severe, when things are so broken, when things are so shattered, that just patiently waiting and hoping is not enough. Such a time is this. Earlier this year as I was praying, I heard the soft voice of the Holy Spirit. He spoke to me, the first drops of rain are gonna fall in America. You realize at every critical juncture in American history, God has poured out his spirit before the Revolutionary War, before the Civil War, at the end of the Civil War, at the beginning of the two world wars, during the 1960s, God just poured out the power of the Spirit. Millions saved. In fact, during the 20th century, every major revival that affected the world started here. We're in the cusp of it again. As I prayed about this, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I'll go back to James and said, Jim, I want to make you a rainmaker. Well, I get that in the corporate world, like law firms have rainmakers, bring a lot of business. It's kind of a term we now use in business. It comes out of Native American lore, someone that could make it rain. 
I said, what do you mean? He said, Jim, my fresh presence is coming to churches all over America. America's in a spiritual drought. America's parched, broken, hurting, torn. But if my people will seed the clouds with prayer, you know, the clouds seed all over America, by the way, in high dry areas. Sometimes they dump these little chemical isotopes into clouds, increases the rain 10 to 35%. Other times they heat it up and it flows into the clouds. So if my people, Jim, will seed the clouds, I will, by my power, make them weather changers. They can change the weather over America. They can see people touched. I was reminded of Revelation chapter eight, then I'll plunge back into the book of James. The seventh seal is gonna be open. They've already had all the different horsemen running around, speaking of inflation, war, famine, plague, all these forces that shape our world. And then all of a sudden it gets really quiet in heaven. It gets quiet because God is gonna reveal the most powerful force in the cosmos. It's not war, not famine, not plague, not pandemic. An angel walks out with a small censer. It has the incense of heaven's worship. Says he takes the prayers of all the saints, not just Pastor James's prayers, Debbie's prayers, my prayers, Kathy's prayers, our elders, our leaders, no. He got the prayers of all the saints, then he got fire from the altar. He lit it, the fuse, threw it to the earth, lightning flashed. Thunder roared, the weather was going to change. We go into James 5 and we find our model for heroic prayer. We find our model for weather changing prayer in James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Why does God emphasize that? Because Bible characters are not superheroes. I'm so thankful I'm not in the Bible, why? Because if you're ever in the Bible, there are no secrets left in your life. Everything about you, good or bad, is for the world to read. Elijah, for all his power, had a depressive personality. He begged to die. He'd be angry, filled with self-pity, want people to die. What does God say? If I can use him, I can use you. If you'll submit to me today, says of him, he prayed fervently and it didn't rain for three years and six months. He prayed again, heaven gave rain, the earth bore its fruit. He said, if I can use Elijah to shift the natural and spiritual weather over his nation, I can use you in Nashville. I can use you in your city. Despite your weaknesses, your fears, your pain, I can use you. They well, Pastor Jim, we live in a pretty bad moment. We've had a pandemic. America's polarized. We've got another terrible war in Europe which scares us. What if they go nuclear? We could get canceled here. He lived in a different day. We know as we look through 1 Kings, 1 Kings 19, he's praying and he finds out you're not the only one. There are 7,000 people that haven't bowed to Baal. You get that? Only 7,000 people out of his whole country were serving God. What would America be like with 7,000 Christians? Oh no, you say, well, Pastor, it's an immoral hour. In that day, immorality was an act of worship. 
You would go to the temple, find a prostitute, either male or female, and once you've had a sexual act with them and a baby was born, you'd burn the baby alive as a sacrifice. The prophets, pastors of that day had been slaughtered and massacred. Blood running everywhere. Dominated by the Baal party. Nations already had civil war, just heading toward judgment. Elijah told him it's not going to rain and now he's in hiding. He's hiding in the Kareth ravine being fed by ravens. That's crazy. I don't even like crows. Ravens seem like big crows. In a supernatural brook. But God's got a problem and here's the problem. When you've been oppressed, marginalized, hounded, persecuted, or hated, it's hard for you to want to save the nation that's perpetrated it on you. And God realized he'd been so persecuted, so marginalized, so hounded, so pounded, so torn, so ripped, so rent, that I want to use this man to save this nation but he's bitter. He's hard. I mean, who wouldn't be? They were hounding him like a dog. There were hit teams looking for him. And God said, I got to take a drastic measure because if I can't get his heart to break for his oppressors, if I can't get his heart to break over that which he hates in his nation, he won't break through for him. So our man woke up out of water. The raven didn't show up and he said, by the way, you're moving. Like, a, yeah, great. Like, where am I moving to? You're moving to Zarephath. It's a little village. He goes, wait a minute. That's like in the wrong country. That belongs to Sidon. That was Jezebel's dad. That was a mothership of darkness. That's where all the immorality and all the Baalism and all the witchcraft came. He said, by the way, I'm going to move you into the one place you'd never live. I'm going to move you into the city that hates people like you the most. There won't be anyone else like you there. How could God do that? How could God move him into a place of such danger and such brokenness. He shows up at Zarephath. He thinks, well, wonder where I'm moving. Maybe they're rich. Maybe they got a little cash. He sees this old decrepit widow starving to death, bitter, with her little boy, skin and bones, about to die. God said, there she is. There's your savior. <clears throat> he goes, and he says, ask her to make you a sandwich. Ma'am, excuse me, make me a sandwich. No, I'm dying, my boy's dying, I'll feed him first, get lost. Spirit of God comes on him, says this. Woman, this is his enemy. This is the heart of darkness. You don't even talk to women in that culture. Woman, you make me the last loaf of bread You'll never run out. He moves in with this family that represents everything he hates. He moves into the, the mothership of 
everything you might not like in your culture or anything you see as your enemy or anything you think oppresses you, hurts you. And all of a sudden he kind of likes this little boy. Doddles him on his name, holds him. And one day he doesn't see him and he hears this wailing and this screaming. How could your God do this to me? What, what? My son's dead. I took you in. My son's dead. How could your hateful God kill my son? His heart breaks. Breaks for the very people that have oppressed him. Breaks for the very people who've wrenched his country. Breaks, falls down, cries out. God, please spare this little boy. Bring him back to life. Don't bring this on this family after all the kindness they've shown to me. God said, really? Little boy's dead in a bed. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's his bed. Had him placed him there. Get on top of that little boy and lay down. And put your holy Jewish prophet lips on his lips. And I want some prophetic CPR. Breathe into him. Nothing happens. He walks around it seven times, kind of like a Jericho deal. Interesting, huh? Some walls are getting ready to collapse. They're all in his heart, I might add. Breathes again, he lives. Then God says, go show yourself to Ahab and I'll save your country. If his heart hadn't have been broken, if his heart hadn't been touched by that moment of fighting for a child, I doubt he would have ever gone to Ahab. What will you settle for? Will you settle for our country being judged? Further destroyed? Further polarized? The more you're appalled by the darkness or the more you feel marginalized, the harder it is. But the fact of it is, it's our responsibility. What will you settle for, beloved? He showed up to Ahab. It's gonna, it's gonna rain. Ahab said, how? Gather all the people on Mount Carmel. Thousands gathered. Now you remember, there are only 7,000 believers. It was a mass of thousands. The prophets of Baal came, sent 400 of their 50 best dancing, whirling prophets. Lancing their skin, cutting their flesh open. Baal, Baal. Now, Elijah had been broken for his enemies. Still a bit sarcastic. Maybe Baal's in the bathroom. Should I wait longer? Here was the test. Whatever God brought fire was the true God. Hours went by. He goes, my turn. Remember, there was a drought. Three and a half years, he said. Pour water on that sacrifice. The people were going, I got a thirsty kid, my livestock are dying. And by the way, the trench I had you dig, surround it, why that? You pour out that which you want. Watch this. Elijah's end game was not fire falling, it was water coming. Where is the God of Israel? Pow, fire torches down, lights up the sacrifice. But Elijah knew fire falling wasn't gonna save the nation, there was a drought. How long will the church settle for fire falling? Woo, what a great sermon. 
Oh, what a great service. Oh, how God touched me. Oh, how I felt it. I jumped. I shouted. I love that worship. Whoa, did you feel the fire at the church? The church has settled for the fire touching them while the rest of their country burns, dies, broken. What will you settle for? And then, of course, in those days they didn't cancel you, they killed you. Then the prophets of Baal were grabbed, killed. In fact, in 40 years, the Baal political party was gone. Oh, surely that was enough. Surely, Pastor Jim, if all of that party was gone, salvation would come to our nation. Surely if we had the House, we had the Senate, we had the presidency, and we had the Supreme Court, glory days would be here again. Oh, really? If we could just change things politically, America would be saved. You really believe that? Well, we act like it. When you trace the voting habits of the electorate and Christians, when their party's out of power, they pray more. When they're in power, they stop. What are you looking for? I just want the Senate. Oh, I just want the House. Oh, I just want the Supreme Court. I just want the White House. If we wanted heaven's house as much as those houses, we'd have revival already. Like, what are you going to settle for? Like, what's your end game this Thanksgiving? Oh, I've picketed, marched. I believe in things. But I sure don't put my trust in them. I don't. What's your end game? What are we after? Everybody went home. He was the hero of the hour. Then he heard something. He said, I hear the sound of rain. Heard the whisper of the Holy Spirit. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. He said, Ahab, you go play. I'm going to go pray. Went back up to Mount Carmel all alone. Everyone loves the crowd. Now there's an audience of one. I'll never forget when our good friend Ron Lewis stood in front of the President of the United States. He said, Mr. President, he said, I know you have to feel. You have to please everyone in the country. Forget it. Your real audience is only one. His name is God. Please him. He's there alone with his servant. Seven times he asked his servant, what do you see? See, there comes a time when you're not praying till you believe, you're not praying till you feel, you're praying till it happens. And the seventh time his servant said, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. He said, we're done, it's gonna rain. Here we stand. We have the power to see the weather of our nation changed. Revivals shake college campuses. Millions saved. Transform hearts. Deal with societal ills. It's people like you and I. Not every nation, not Bethel, the church. That have the power to do this. It's time for heroic prayer. But it's real simple. 
Every night before Kathy and I go to bed, we pray. We take a couple minutes just saying, we pray for revival. And may I encourage you every day, take about 60 seconds and pray this prayer, Jesus, revive me. Jesus, revive my city. Jesus, revive this country. Jesus, revive this world. As COVID started, I was involved in leading a movement called Unite 714. A very literal hundreds of millions of people prayed from 191 countries. God mitigated what could have been a wholesale massacre. He can do it again. Join me up here, brother. I want you to stand to your feet, please. Let's stand up together. And I want you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, revive me. Revive Nashville. Revive my neighborhood. Revive our nation. Let it rain on us. Pour down on us. We don't put our trust in politics. We put our trust in you. Thank you so much.